Hey, Jason, how you doing this week? I'm doing well, Dan. How are you? I'm pretty good. I was hoping if you might have a, we could start with a steak update of some kind. Have you grilled anything, aged any meat, uh, smoked anything that we should know about? Uh, all the above. I mean, yeah. I typically do all three of those in order. So, you know, meaning that uh, I do prefer, well, it depends on sort of where the meat is from. Uh, so there are some places, uh, like there's this great place here uh, out by Baker, Bakersfield in California called mm-hmm. the uh, Santa Carota. They do a carrot-finished beef. I, I find that I, I prefer the taste of that, not dry-aged. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's it's actually it's actually a pretty nice thing. And then 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 uh, and then generally, yeah, everything else is uh, fifteen to forty-five day dry aged. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you age then, it yourself, or are you getting them pre-aged? Both. Okay. And then um, uh, doing it yourself requires you only are going to do it for certain cuts, and uh, you're only going to do it when you can get a larger primal of it. So, you know, meaning if you're going to, if you're going to dry age New York steaks, then you're getting the whole sirloin strip, you know, which, which when you slice it is 12 to 14 steaks, right? So, you know, meaning uh, you, you, you never just dry age an individual steak because 30% of the stuff ends up leaving from volume and you're just left with uh, uh, what people typically call um, like squishy beef jerky. That doesn't sound appetizing. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and then I'm a, uh, I'm a very big fan of thick cuts of meat, meaning things that are three to five inches mm-hmm. thick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically um, uh, that. And I almost always slow smoke it. So, you know, meaning I, I uh, for beef, I tend to use... Um, a combination of a uh, fresh but kiln dried oak wood is usually white oak uh, from California, and then um, uh, I have some white oak from Japan, uh, and then uh, which is charcoal, uh, uh, and then um, some other sort of oak based charcoals for beef, and then and then I'm often cooking a thicker steak like that for three to six hours at a pretty low temperature, meaning like something on the order of 160 to 180 degrees. Right. So you're basically Fahrenheit. smoke smoking it really slow cooking. Oh, that's exciting. I'm leaving it. I'm not editing anything out. Yeah, that's, that's fine. It um, stays in the show. Yeah. Because you know, the thing is, is on a, on a thicker cut of meat, it takes a while for the smoke to get into it anyways. Uh, and, um, uh, for me, you know, the funny part is I tend to like the, the way that I do my steaks is not necessarily commercially viable for a steakhouse to ever do it that way. Meaning I, I will spend, um, enough time with it present to get a really good caramelization and a lot of flavor, you know, in the sort of, uh, outer edges of the the steak where it's just a really great caramelized sear with a tremendous amount of flavor yet throughout you know say the three inch thick steak it's on the order of medium rare to medium still um and um and uh so what people i think don't understand maybe you can talk about this because i know that for many years you were in the medical industry that it's (laughs) it is you don't it's only the outside of the steak that is a concern. You could eat a steak and that's why we have steak tartare, right? I'm sure you can talk, talk more about this than I can, Yeah. but the, the interior of the steak can be n- not only medium or medium rare or rare, it can be completely raw. And you, uh, if you chose well, to eat that, couldn't you eat that? Is that, is that true? Uh, yes, with some, but I'll explain sort of the, okay. the general walk things. Me through it. Walk me through it. Well, what a lot of people don't understand, um, and, uh, you know, as you, as you correct, my first couple of degrees were in chemistry. I did a PhD in pathology. I, I, I worked in that area for years and, um, uh, you know, say back in my emergency room days, 
inevitably somebody who's new there eventually gets peed on. Just like his rite of passage, like a hazing yeah, it's a little type like, thing. like being a parent at some point, your kids. Oh, wait, accidentally. I thought you meant like, you know, they just would do that. Uh, no, you'll have these things where like a slightly older patient or somebody who's homeless or something like that. They'll be like collecting a sample and they're just sort of spaced out and they'll just turn towards you and spray it across your legs. Okay. I mean, I've had that happen more than enough times. Uh, sometimes people don't quite know how full it might be and it just goes everywhere like a crazy hose. Uh, and, um, yeah, but inevitably in an emergency room, you get, um, peed on, bled on, barfed on, um, uh, stabbed by at least two to three different things. Um, and I've been stabbed by scissors, uh, accidentally sliced by a scalpel, had a needles accidentally jammed through my hand, uh, and purposefully jammed through my hand, depending, uh, on the patient. And stuff like that. So you end up uh, just sort of experiencing those things. And I would always tell people the first time they get peed on, I'm like, don't, don't, don't worry about it. Pee is sterile. And they go, huh? And then you begin to start realizing that the inside of a living thing, like a human being or uh-huh. a cow, is inherently sterile. There is no bacteria growing inside of you. Uh, if you had bacteria growing in your blood, you'd actually end up, that's what infections are, and you end up in sort of a state of sepsis and septic shock, um, blood and urine and meat, if you will, is sterile. The inside of living things are sterile. Right. Um, the inside of your colon, of course, isn't sterile because there's bacteria there doing a whole bunch of things and, and these types of things. You're talking about like in the muscle tissue. In muscle the... is sterile. Muscle right. is sterile. Blood is sterile. You know, these things are sterile. Um, now, if they're not, they're infected. <laughs> Right. So right. It's a, meaning it's a pathological tissue from that sort of point. That makes sense. Uh, and so, you know, when you're dealing with sort of a large, uh, you know, like say half a, you know, half a block of beef, uh, it is the handling of it that ends up infecting it. Uh, and you're, you're correct in that uh, when you're going and, and sort of doing a whole cow, half cow, uh, you know, sort of level butchery um, in preparation of that, it is the environment that you're you're in and the handling of it that may contaminate it uh, in that. Uh, and then you're also correct in the sense that a contamination tends to be a surface contamination. So um, now when you look at the process of slow cooking things, uh, there's um, in my mind, a sort of unified way of thinking about it. There's on one hand, uh, the typical sous vide method where you take something, you vacuum seal it, uh, and you effectively then put it in a water bath that is the target temperature that you would like it to be. And then the thing that you're cooking gets up to that target temperature and then it spends time there in its own juices, uh, you know, in that. So you can go and set the water bath to being exactly 132 degrees Fahrenheit for a steak and that steak will get to 132 degrees Fahrenheit end to end. And then as it spend, spends time, that will sterilize the surface of the meat and sterilize it throughout you know, sort of in there, uh, if of course it's contaminated in the first place and you don't be contaminating it through, through handling. Mm. Um, if you put a potato in there and you put it on 180, 180 degrees Fahrenheit, it will get up to that temperature and then it will sort of soften, uh, you know, over time. Um, you can take relatively, uh, or very tough cuts of meat, sous vide them for 72 hours, uh, and make them very tender, uh, you know, from that sort of perspective. Um, the other way that, of course, a lot of us are familiar with slow cooking meat would be braising it in a quote-unquote slow cooker. Um, that means that you are putting some liquid around it and having it cook in that liquid. And, of course, things are leaving it, you know, f- which flavor, but it's heading into sort of like the broth, uh, if you will. And you can slow cook something in a sous vide, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, in a crock pot or, uh, you know, in something like that. Uh, and then I also think that, of course, you can slow cook um, uh, with smoke, you know, so meaning you're actually putting it in a lower temperature smoking environment and letting it, you know, slow cook over a significant, you know, period of period of time. Um, Now, in each of these, when you think about it in the sous vide, you're sort of cooking in your own juices and everything's sealed off. So drying out is not an issue. Uh, You can also do, of course, a number of things, uh, you know, in there. You could technically still braise in a sous vide if you put more more liquid, uh, you know, in it. 
you of course can do that in a slow cooker, but you know, nutrients and these things leave out into the broth. So if you're going to do that, you want to make sure that you do something with, you know, the broth that's basically sitting there. And of course, usually when we're doing short ribs or something inside of that, you do that. Uh, and then of course, if you do things in smoke, uh, you can particularly dry out, but that's the importance of actually forming a really good crust uh, on the outside of something that you're doing there. Uh, and um, uh, that effectively seals, you know, the sort of outside uh, to dryness. And then most importantly, uh, how you actually let things rest, uh, you know, in that and that sort of slicing into something too soon after taking it out of temperature, um, you know, can actually lead it to be a little more uh, leaky than usual. You know, you shouldn't have a steak sitting uh, in a plate where it's basically full of a bunch of liquid as you start slicing into it. It means you've been cutting into it too early or you're taking it to too much of a temperature extreme and then back down again. Uh, and then, you know, often when I go and I smoke things too, I, I, um, I do the typical Texas thing where I'm, I'm basting the outside of it uh, with like uh, beef tallow. That's typically, you know, meaning beef fat that's typically from... Um, uh, Wagyu breed of cow, so like Wagyu beef, beef tallow. Uh, and when you do that with certain combinations of seasonings and vinegar and that type of thing, you can have a, a, a spectrum of flavors, if you will, that taste very quote-unquote Texas barbecue. But I'd say that, you know, quote-unquote Texas barbecue, that taste that you might be familiar with, you know, where you live in the world, yeah, uh, comes from basing the meat or coating the meat in beef fat as well. And then... Um, um, a, a, a range of different wrapping techniques where you may wrap it inside of butcher paper and then, you know, cook it sort of longer, you know, or, or that type of thing. All these things can also be combined with one another. So, you know, often if I'm hosting a lot of people over a barbecue by a lot, I mean, anywhere between 50 to 120 a people that is a lot uh, in that, then what I'll often do is sous vide a lot of things beforehand, you know, I'll, I'll, um, to and, sort of uh, get them most of the way done, to get them so, so they're yeah, so to get them so they're they're basically done. Um, and then the trick, if you're gonna, you're just putting the, a sear on the outside. Then, well, the trick is, and here's here's sort of the trick is you can go and like sous vide a brisket for like three days, make it really super tender, have it at 132 degrees Fahrenheit. But one typically takes a brisket up to like 196 if you're doing a smoker, you know. Mm -hmm. But you can you can sous vide brisket, sous vide ribs. Uh, you know, sous vide a bunch of things for one day, two days, three days, you know, in that. Uh, the key, though, is once meat gets above about 140 to 150 degrees Fahrenheit, it stops taking smoke, really, from a flavor perspective. Uh, and so you, so if you're sous viding at, say, 132 degrees, the one way to think about it is you only have like eight degrees of smoking in that. So what I always do is I'll go and sous vide one, two, three days, prepare a lot, uh, have some things that are going to go that same day, uh, you know, of course, but I'll go and do, say, a, a whole repertoire of pork and a whole repertoire of beef, and then everything gets iced down uh, to literally almost zero, to, zero degrees Celsius, you know what I mean, like 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So I put everything on ice or put it in the freezer, uh, and um, I won't freeze it. You know, but I'll put it in the freezer for like two, three hours, put it in the refrigerator after that, put it all on ice uh, and um, take it off the ice and then sort of refrigerate it and then put it into the smoker's refrigerated. Because then if it goes in at say 32 degrees Fahrenheit, now it's going to go from 32 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So think of it like there's 100 degrees Fahrenheit of smoke. Oh, I was just going to say, so you're, you're sort of just buying extra time with the smoke by doing that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, and then for me, uh, I think a lot of people will go and, um, yeah, I guess, you know, take take something out um, when it's got sort of a crust and it's relatively dry on the outside. But there's this great point that if you bring the temperature down and go longer, then in fact, like all of a sudden these things will basically sweat and look very juicy and glistening. So there's a sort of like glistening caramelization that um, occurs, I find, when you go 
you know, cause a lot of people will sit around and they'll, they'll smoke stuff at 220, 240, 260, you know, do things like that. I hit temperatures like 150 to 180. Mm. Uh, and I will go longer. And it's things where, you know, if I'm cooking a, you know, a thick, you know, porterhouse or something like that, by thick meaning like a good four inch thick porterhouse, um, I'll, I'll go and actually cook that at 180 degrees for five or six hours before it gets to medium rare, medium. And how are uh, and you, then, how, are, how then, do you know how long you then, do it? Are you che- checking the temperature? Are you just, I doing literally it? go by just how it feels now. Like mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go and feel it and the way the outside looks. Um, and, um, and so, yeah. That's, is that just because every it. steak is, uh, every cut of meat is a little bit different and you can't have a standard way to do it? You have to play it by ear. What's the, what's the thinking? Uh, well, you know, can we, you know, this is going to sound very strange, but I, I do, the, the only other social media presence I have, as you know, is uh, an Instagram account where all I post is about steak. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and it's the Steakitarian. So go, go, go there and let me just show you what I mean. I'm going there now. Yeah. By the, um, all right, I'm there. Okay. So, uh, if you go to like literally, you see how even in the beginning, it's three New York steaks there, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's them raw. That's them next to fire. And then I always do it like offset. And then the great one is just on the top row on the right. Do you see that's just been offset from wood like that for about two hours? And you see that type of caramelization? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similar thing. If you go to the fourth picture, you see that sort of like edge. That's all flavor right there. That's all. And now it literally inside, it's still rare to medium rare. Um, the extreme examples, if you go down, I'll show you what I mean. Or if you scroll all the way down, you know what cap steaks are? Uh, aren't those the ones that are sort of sitting at the very top of the cut of the you take, meat? You take a ribeye. It's normal ribeye, and there's the outer edge of the ribeye, or like think of it's a prime rib, right? Right. It's the outer edge, and then the eye, right? So a cap steak is where you take the outer edge of the ribeye and you roll that up into its own steak. So if you scroll down, it's right underneath. There's like three tomahawks there, but there's this picture of a. Uh, it's got eight cap steaks there. I see. But th- this is really good, and see, picture in the middle is them right on there. Like they just put them on there so they're raw. And then you see how the fire's like offset to the left. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now close that up. And um, those steaks are done when they look like the picture on the left there. That type of caramelization. That, there's right. no filter on that picture. It's beautiful. Right. And then similar thing, if you go down and you look at like one of these thick porterhouses that's there, um, Exactly this picture and the, the that's not um there's literally again there's no filter on that. So that's like literally when you go and you put something in the smoker, that will still be medium rare to medium inside of it. Um but the um it looked caramelized on the outside when you really do things truly low and and slow, you know, in that. And so I do a lot of for thicker cuts of meat, I'll do a lot of offset you know, type things where my, my, my target temperature quite honestly is 160 to 200 degrees, uh, you know, sort of in that. And it goes until the caramelization is basically done. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, it's, I think we should just do a show about this. Well, you know, the thing is, is that it's, we, yeah, yeah, we can, we can definitely do that. I mean, the thing is, is, and everyone can do it. It's Instagram.com slash steakitarian.club. Okay. So it's just like vegetarian, but steakitarian. Uh, and uh, there's some pretty, pretty good examples in there uh, of my style, if you will, which, which I said, uh, generally, if people come to my house and have a steak, the usual feedback is, this is one of the best steaks I've ever had in my life. And I've spent a lot of time making really, 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 really good steaks. And the funny part is if you ever sit down and say, well, um, we should go and do a steak like that in a restaurant. Well, the good example is that, that porterhouse. The porterhouse is, you go to like the typical thing you'll cut a porterhouse on. 
that is the top four and a half inches of a porterhouse. Um, that steak raw is a hundred and thirty dollars steak, hmm. uncooked. Um, process of cooking it took from one o'clock in the afternoon to six o'clock in the evening. Not not as practical to do um, in a steak place. <laughs> um, if you sit down, you realize it's about four pounds. So you like can't a eat a four pound steak, steak in, in one sitting. You've got to share that with people, right? I mean, that's not just you eating that. Uh, no, I, I can do about two and a half pounds, but oh. I, you're correct. I can't do four pounds. Uh, but I, I can get a little tomahawk myself. I haven't, because I, I generally I'll eat one, I'll eat one meal a day. And then depending on what it's it just is, the, is just the steak might just be a steak. Uh, no, like, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, uh, um, it might be, it might be just a, it's never just a steak. Cause I, cause I tend to, if I have a steak, I still, um, eat about a kilogram of broccoli with it. Yeah. I'm eating, I, I'll eat like two pounds of broccoli and a two and a half pound steak and then just call it a day. All in one <laughs> sitting or spread out over the course of the afternoon or how, how do you do it? No, I can just sit down and eat it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you can eat about five pounds of food. Me personally, you know or a person in general, or uh, I mean, I can. But I, I can know my my eat. kids certainly could. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, you look at the picture that's on. They're like you know, the website for this. Gremlins after little... after midnight, you throw yeah, exactly. chicken at them, and it's just gone. Exactly. It looks like a yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but no, it's one of these. Like I, I don't know. I mean, that porterhouse like that. What do you? Probably, what would you charge that? Probably $450 in a steakhouse. <clears throat> I mean, and that's, that's not practical Something. for most steakhouses. Uh, well, I think, again, the, 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 we, you're correct in that typically what we're doing there is, you know, we're a family of five. And I also have a, we have a six or my daughter's at college. So it might be six of us. And then, you know, sometimes we'll have, you know, my, brother-in-law and his wife and son over so that's eight to nine of us uh and yeah i'll often take a what's better to do sort of a big five pound piece of meat and then just slice it up for the kids and another five pound piece of meat and slice it up for the the adults and you sort of go from there you know what i mean and um but um but no it, it's a you know to the funny thing about it is always you know i always say that you know color is flavor and um you want to sort of do these types of methods i guess i've developed myself where it's all about that type of caramelization and heading into sort of a reverse sear um and then uh the question is really how tender do you want this to be and the tenderization can come from the source you know, meaning like an A5 Kobe steak is inherently very tender. There's no need to sous vide it for three days or mm -hmm. slow smoke it or something like that. But the tenderization may come from the source. It may come from a process that you've done, you know, wet aging, dry aging. Um, you know, while the meat is quote unquote uncooked. Or it may come from a process of cooking the meat. And that process can be chemical, thermodynamic. Uh, you know, there can be the exposure to smoke or not. Uh, and when I say chemical, I mean things like, uh, like how you'd make ceviche, you know what I mean? So you can like chemically cook something in vinegar, uh, you know, and that you actually denature the proteins and, and, and that type of thing. But to me, the question is always exactly where does it, where does it come from? Um, what is the tenderization process, if you will, but the, but the process you're going through to get it to the consistency that you would like in it? And then, and then, you know, as part of that, then how do you really get a great caramelization, which in a lot of ways is the preferential cooking of the fat without, you know, sort of overcooking, you know, sort of the piece of meat, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you will. And then how do you get a really nice, you know, sear on it from that perspective where it just has a nice, nice sort of edge there. Uh, and, um, and that's been, I don't know, I think it's probably last. I mean, I'm feeling pretty on top of my game right now when it comes to steaks, to be honest. I mean, I, 
I've, and, it's, and it's probably been about a 12 year journey. I was going to say like you had stakes all over the world. Make, have you made any, uh, errors along the way? Any, any time where you've bought an expensive steak and you're like, I'm going to do it just like then you do it. And it's like completely screwed up. It's completely bad. And you're like, well, no, never. Not even in, in the no. first month of your 12 year journey. Um, I think there would be things where, oh, geez, that should have been more tender, mm-hmm. but, um, I've never had something inedible. Um, that's really, and, and I think part of it too, is you have, cause you, again, you think that even the process of making beef jerky or something like that, you know, you're, you're affecting the tenderness of it. Mm-hmm. You're using sort of cool air to, to age it. Do you make I mean, beef you know, jerky? I don't know. Cause I don't, um, um, like you don't ever have like a little little scraps or something. You're like, oh, I could do some with this. For for me, it's like it's it's purely almost. Uh, you know, if if I'm doing, you know, I've done, you know, like century double century bike rides. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I don't I don't need a lot of. I mean, like I don't need a lot of carbs. Um, you know, sort of anyway. I mean, I tend to be, you know, I tend to be a much more fat adjusted, you know, type, type endurance athlete when, when I have been an endurance athlete on that. So, um, like beef jerky, eggs, butter is more likely to be, um, what I'm eating, you know, on the road. Well, you know, I've you know, been, I've been uh, paleo for thir- almost four, 12, 12, 13 years now. So that's yeah. all, you know, preaching to the choir stuff uh, yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I always was too until, you know, in hindsight, until, um, you know, as you said, like earlier when I was in medicine, I, I guess, you know, I, I had a, actually had a hard time eating meat because I was around meat all the time. You know, that sounds gross as a, you know, pathologist, but, uh, you know, no, that you're, period you're of time, the, I was pretty. You're not the first pretty, person to tell me that. I've heard that from other doctors and other people, oh, yeah, too. I They're just, like, oh, I went through med school and can't eat meat now. Like, why? It looks too much like us. I can't eat it. It's, well, you're just, <laughs> yeah, and you're just, um, uh, you're just around it all the time, you know? So, meaning, even if you're sitting there and, you know, you're suturing up something on somebody's leg and there's a little bit of fat that's popping out and you like trim it, you know, wipe it on the thing. And then you're like looking at it and you're like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't, you know, if that happens in the kitchen next, it just makes it very difficult. So I spent about, um, 14 years as a vegetarian and then nearly half of that pretty vegan. Um, you know, in the sense that, um, I would eat eggs was basically the only thing out of that, but there was a lot of avocados, nuts, uh, that type of thing. And, and there, you know, I tended to be single digit percent body fat and I could still, it was, you know, running half marathon to marathon length runs. I'm going to ran 10 miles every day. But, um, um, but there, you know, I was probably, uh, you know, like in my mind, it's like eating, you know, eating an avocado. If you eat like avocados, broccolis, almonds, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, they're actually pretty low from a net carb perspective, you know, meaning, um, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll eat a kilogram of broccoli, you know, meaning like two pounds of broccoli, you know, half a pound of cauliflower. I'll have maybe three avocados, you know, in that, you know, and you sort of add up net carbs there. It's less than 30 grams in a day. Yeah. That's a lot of, that's actually a lot of food, uh, from sort of that perspective. So, um, uh, and then, you know, and then, you know, and and then when I, uh, like you take, for example, the picture on the website for living on the edge, that was, uh, our last month and a half in Europe. We went and spent two weeks in Prague and then we lived in Rome for a month and then moved back to Los Gatos. And that month we spent in Rome, um, you know, that was just like having a espresso martini for breakfast and pasta. And it started at 10 AM. And mm. even though we were walking all day, every day doing stuff, like I just, I was in Rome for a month. I ate everything mm. that I came yeah, across. I think when it was last I, week or the week before you were telling me about how you'd wake up in the morning, 
you know, go over to that breakfast place. <sighs> well, there's there are no breakfast places in Rome. Right, because like they don't do breakfast, think. but you would. There was a thing that you did. And oh, they had these beautiful um, <laughs> sandwiches. Uh-huh. You know, white bread sandwiches. Yeah. You know, a little bit of uh, you know cheese, different meats, different sort of things inside of it. So we get a thing of sandwiches, thing of uh, you know, sort of pastries, bunch of espresso. You know, chow all that down, and basically head off and start with the pasta. But I, but I, but I mean, I mean, a good example is if I mix, because when you drink alcohol. You know, the, your body prioritizes processing that alcohol, and then anything else you eat basically gets shuttled off to fat, right? Mm-hmm. So I probably did spend that. I probably spent, you know, at least half to the majority of our waking hours drinking alcohol that month. I mean, it's like a month off, you know, from sort yeah. of that perspective. Sure, have a little a, drink here. A little we're break. having a little bottle of wine. You know, we're doing this. You know, throughout the sort of the course of the day. And then, uh, you know, if you, if I load carbs on top of that, I just explode. I mean, I think I gained, um, 33, 34 pounds that month in Italy. I did I about a think, pound I mean, we've a talked day. about this. I just don't think that's possible. I don't think a person, unless to you're doing 70, like, like 70, sumo, sumo training or something, can you gain that what, much weight in a month? Yeah. 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 What it, what it essentially means is it means that while in Rome, um, cause again, we're walking everywhere, but it, all it means is that let's say I was burning 3000 calories walking. It meant that I ate another seven. So it just takes eating 7,000 calories oh in excess a day, 7,500. It's like when yeah, people 7, say that they like are chain, they're chain smokers, you know, and they, they smoke yeah. like four or five packs a day or something like that. Yeah. How do you even fit in five packs a day? It's almost the same thing. It's like, how do you, I think you'd be, I, the thing is, is time for that. It's like a hobby and a no, job. Like you could, you could, you can pretty easily sit around and, um, um, I mean, you could drink two bottles of wine and a plate of nachos and be a couple thousand calories in. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I mean, the thing is, 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 um, uh, like Coco de Pepe. Oh my God. The Coco de Pepe in Rome. Everyone's got their own variation of it. Everyone's got sort of this. It's amazing. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. So you sit around and it's like, you get a little Coco de Pepe to start. You get another one. And now you're helping the kids with the pizzas. Don't even get me started on tiramisu. Yeah, just the desserts, right? Uh, and then uh, you know you started out with some prosecco, and then you got into some sort of red wine, and then you're having sort of another uh, limoncello. There's no way limoncello's fucking low carb, low calorie, right? Yeah. So you just do prosecco and a red wine into limoncello all day. And then sprinkle in <laughs> coconut pepe and tiramisu and everything else. I, I think, yeah, you can eat. I can eat 7,000, 10,000 calories in a day. So I, I was walking around Rome for a month eating like Michael Phelps, but I was not swimming in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. But that's, uh, but no, but otherwise, just my, you know, the, uh, um, when I'm not like that, it's pretty simple. Is it, um, you know, I don't, I don't drink calories. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, all the carbs that I get are basically from broccoli, cauliflower, you know, avocados, that type of thing. So I, I probably, you know, at the highest I'm, I'm landing maybe 25 to 50 grams net carbs in a day, but, um, more than that in fiber, you know, from that stuff. And then usually what I'm putting on top of it is ribeyes, New York's, mackerel, sardines, salmon, sablefish, black cod, which is a fattier cod, uh, avocados, chia seeds, da, 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 da. but I still probably land where, I don't know, you know, about 60% of my calories are fat and about 40%-ish or protein, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then, you know, the, the carbs sort of equal out, uh, that kind of thing. Um, um, but you know, for me, like even how that's always what, I mean, and again, this is people have to discover what sort of works for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, if I literally sit down and, um, eat a New York steak, eat a piece of salmon, 
eat two pounds of broccoli, uh, you know, and then have some like, you know, cream cheese with limes and maybe some chia seeds in it for like a dessert. I, I can just sit down and eat that. And then I don't eat again for another, you know, 22, 20, 23 hours. And yet, um, in the morning I can still get up and do my kettlebell work. I can still do, uh, the weight training that I do. I can still go off to judo. I mean, I can get in three or four hours of working out throughout the course of a day and still get in stuff like that and feel, feel fine. Um, from that perspective, meaning I don't, I don't feel hungry or weak or, or that type of thing like that. I mean, for me, what historically has probably been the more important, um, part of it is electrolyte management, you know, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, but I know, you know, particularly when I've done more long distance things, you know, where you're, you're on a bike or running for eight hours, 16 hours, that, that kind of stuff gotten a bit of a handle of what it means to have my sodium be low versus my potassium be low versus I can wake up in the morning and, and, and know if I'm like, just by the way my calves are feeling, whether I'm on the low side from a magnesium perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, um, just, just manage that, you know, as much as you can out of eating, of course, like that. But then, uh, sometimes for the longer distance things, I'll use products like uh, salt stick, you know, which is a great combination of, uh, four different, you know, electrolytes together and a really sort of, uh, easy way to do it. And I, and I like the, you know, the liquid based one that just goes in water, That that's, that's sort of pretty straightforward. I mean, I use that for like really, really long rides and runs, you know, whenever I'm doing that type of thing. And then, um, um, but if I wake up and like my calves feel a little crampy, then, you know, three tablets of magnesium goes in and another two go in later in the day. And I just do that for a couple of days until that goes away. And then that usually sort of restabilizes stuff out. But, um, to me, a lot of how I feel during working out, you know, if you're sort of on the side where you're very dependent on carbs, you know, if you will, you know, meaning you're eating cliff bars and drinking sports drinks and that type of thing. Uh, you know, for me, the ability to go and say, ride a bicycle for 16 hours becomes very dependent on what I'm eating and how often I'm eating and whether I'm eating, you know, 200 calories every you know, 20 minutes and drinking this and so on like that. Um, but when I exclude carbs almost entirely from my diet outside of things that are very fiber rich foods, really, you know, meaning net, net, net carbs, not, not not very high. Uh, when I do that, I, I can literally go uh, get on a bicycle after having not eaten for uh, 16 hours and then go on an eight-hour bike ride. And as long as my hydration and electrolytes feel okay, I got more energy than I do in the, the carb-loaded case. Right. That's what people um, don't understand is when they're, especially when they're making the switch from a diet that is predominantly carbohydrate and sugar based. And they're making a switch from that to a diet where you're going to be fat burning and basically relying on protein and fat. Yeah. There is this very difficult transition as you go from one to the other, especially if you're, you know, 30 something, 40 something or older where yeah. you've basically, you've trained your body your whole life to be on this roller coaster of carbohydrate uh, peak and then crash um, yeah. that making a transition where you're not having any carbs, like people have headaches, they have all kinds of fatigue because they're given, they're basically breaking their addiction to sugar um, for lack of a better term. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I think that's, um, so it's not um, because if, so, you know, the funny parts, if you think about it, you have, you have the macros of fat, protein and carbohydrates <clears throat> and um, you can, uh, you know, in a, in a relatively quote unquote well balanced diet, mm -hmm. just think of it like one third, one third, one third of your calories will come from these. Uh, and, uh, you know, for me, that, that should be, <clears throat> people will do 30, 30, 40, you know, 40% from carbs and 30% from the other two. But that's not, you know, the 30, 30, 40, just think one third, one third, one third, you know, 33, 33, 33. Just think it nice and, nice and sort of even like that, right? Mm hmm. 
Um, and, uh, and you can do that pretty healthily. I mean, that's like a bowl of blueberries with some cottage cheese on top of it and some peanut butter. And, you know, that turns out that's 30, 30, 30, <laughs> right? So you, you can, you can, you can land at sort of that, the macros on there. So for people that are, you know, they sort of have this open question of, well, am I, am I hooked on processed sugar or something like that? Yeah. So, okay, well, here's simple rule of thumb is don't drink calories. Um, and that includes milk even just, just try to stick to, you know, sit around, you're going to drink water, tea, coffee. Uh, and then what I always do with people is I said, okay, let's say that you're eating 250 grams of carbohydrates per day. And then maybe 250 grams of protein and 125 grams of fat. Like that's sort of like, that's a, like a bodybuilder diet. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, I go, okay, we'll say 250 grams of carbohydrates that's three apples uh it's um a pound and a half of broccoli it's a banana it's two english muffins with like some peanut butter on it and it's a pound of blueberries so i mean which by the way that's that that that's sounds a like a lot right it sounds like so a you lot. sit around and you go okay if it's um um 200 grams then it's just two less apples so I'll do it with people is I'll often look and say, okay, well, just had a, cause this is what I did. This is what I did myself at one point, you know, we're about, um, you know, probably, you know, when we moved to Sweden in 2014, I sat down and was like, my God, the last five years, it just exploded, you know? Um, and, uh, and then I was like, okay, well, you know, how was, how was, how was I eating before? I mean, the basic difference was business dinners and travel and drinking, you know, and I sort of, like, okay, well, um, go back to not drinking calories and then you start looking at all the stuff you do, and you go, okay, so let's say you eat 200 grams of carbs, you eat 251 grams of carbs. Let's just say 200 grams of carbs. Um, and um, and it's like, okay, well, that's um, it's one apple. Uh, you know, again, it's a pound and a half of broccoli. It's one banana. It's two English muffins, you know, peanut butter, mm-hmm. and a pound of blueberries. It's a lot of stuff. And you say, okay, well, um, why don't you move to... The first step is still eat 200 grams of carbs. Just move to those carbs not being from other sort of stuff. And people might have a hard time getting away from bread. So it's like, okay, so you still get, you can wake up in the morning, get two English muffins, healthy grain style, put a tablespoon of peanut butter on each, you know, slice up a banana, put it on each, eat it. There's your banana, there's your peanut butter, there's your two things. Uh, And then um, later on in the day, you're going to slice up an apple and, Eat, eat some blueberries with it and you're going to slice up some apples, eat some blueberries with it. And then you're going to have broccoli with lunch and dinner, but you, you just eat 200 grams that way. Uh, and then, um, you know, basically the, you know, and that, and that's like, that's 250, that's 1400 calories of carbohydrates. If you eat 250 grams of it, you know what I mean? Like you eat all three apples, you eat all, you eat all of that. Uh, and, um, and, um, but at that 250 grams, it's really 200 grams net carbs and 50 grams of fiber, you know? So if you're like hooked on sugar, just sitting there and saying, tell you what, eat three apples, seven, you know, 760 gram bag of broccoli, one banana, two English muffins, two tablespoons of peanut butter, uh, and one of the big tubs of blueberries, just eat that every single day. That's 1400 calories. <laughs> Uh, it's 200, 200 grams net carbs, 50 grams of fiber, which is literally five grams more than, you know, any adult male basically needs. So just replace all carbohydrate you have with that and then add fish and steak or eggs or whatever you sort of want on top of it. But step one is just convert your carb load into that type of carb load. And then what you do is you, um, um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's two kilograms of fruit and vegetables. It's five pounds of fruit and vegetables in a day, uh, you know, in that. Uh, and then, um, but that's sort of step one. Step one is uh, carbs only come from fruits and vegetables. And then step two is limit the fruits and vegetables to be ones that um, are friendly. So, you know, berries, um, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, collard greens, avocados, kale, you know, those types of things. So meaning you take an apple away. And then the next week you take an apple away 
and then you take the banana away, and then you take the apple away. And once the apples and bananas go, then everything that's left except for the English muffins, Mm -hmm. you know, are basically, you know, relatively clean, quote unquote, clean carbs from that perspective. And then the English muffins go away because you just get used to eating the peanut butter off the spoon, eating blueberries with it. And then, you know, basically, um, that's going to tell you whether you're hooked on processed sugars, in my opinion. Right. You know, and whether you're hooked on sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of, you know, drinking a bottle of wine and then binging on carbs and fat sort of like afterwards. Uh, and, um, and then once you're at, um, and then, you know, an easy thing to do is like replace the banana and an apple with an avocado. And then essentially once you're on all bro, you know, all, all of these things, you know, once you're basically on broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, collard greens, avocados. Once you're on that, there really is no limit to that that you can eat because if it's it's almost impossible to eat enough to have more than 50 grams of net carbs come out of those. Like it's really difficult uh, to go and do it. You'll you'll be eating pounds and pounds of broccoli and you'll be eating a dozen avocados and and that that type of thing like that. And then if you have something like berries, like blueberries, you know, if you keep those to less than 100 grams in a day, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to land in a low-carb situation. And uh, and then um, you sort of go from there. Now, my own experience, too, is then the sort of question is, you know, if you go low-carb, well, where are the other calories going to come from? And then the question is really, on one hand, are you going to get 60% from protein and 40% from fat? Are you going to get 60% from fat and 40% from proteins? Um. That's almost sort of the question that's left. I'd done, when I was weight training a lot, I'd done 60% protein, you know, diets, you know, sort of in that. Uh, and uh, which is the most common thing you see in things like the quote-unquote lean gains methods and that type of bit. I'd find that extended, for me, because I was also, you know, for, and again, I think it's for me. I mean, for me, I'd find that um, uh, I'd, I'd almost literally get I don't want to say protein, protein, you know, it's a little bit like people that only eat rabbit get sick because it's basically an exceptionally lean meat. It's only protein. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'd find that spending two, three, four, five months eating 60% of my calories from protein, I just didn't feel well um, doing that. But basically flipping it to where, uh, nah, actually more like 60% comes from fat and about, 40% 40% comes from protein lands in a pretty good spot for me. And I've, and I've now, um, that was, you know, upon reflection, that's basically how I ate from my teenage, like from 14 years old all the way up to about, um, 33, 34, you know, and then, you know, came to San Francisco and spent, was an entrepreneur and that type of thing and spent like 34 years old up till, I don't know, 43 years old, just blowing up by not eating that way. And then sort of, you know, sat down and said, Hey, you know, wait a minute. Why don't I go back to the way from 14 to 33 and, uh, see if that basically affects me. And then, um, just started shifting into that till it felt well and wanted to keep my training up and that type of thing. And then, um, um, I mean, if you look like the website picture, I'm, I'm probably 60, 60 pounds lighter in that picture, you know, relative yeah. to that. It's nice. but, yeah, yeah, I think it's, you know, but it's always, I mean, the, 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 the issue I think people always have is just, um, how do you sort of, for yourself, how do you basically figure out what it takes to power the activity level that you want? Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, well, that was, uh, that was like right on the edge of nutritional training. I, mean, I think we're, we're done for the day. Dave. I think so too. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else. I hope everybody enjoyed about. a slight break. I mean, one, you know, my joke always is there's nothing as irritating as a um as a as a keto vegan doing CrossFit basically showing up at a dinner party. Uh-huh. So um, you know, I, I tend to um I, I think the general uh you know, goal is for for people to get to a you know a a level of things where it doesn't really necessarily matter what they eat are sort of exactly like that, but they're they're, they're at least um, paying attention to it and 
finding out what basically works for them. And uh, yeah, I mean, for me, eating a gigantic ribeye, two pounds of broccoli, handful of blueberries, some peanut butter, some salmon, just doing that every day works for me. And so then that steak's got to be caramelized and tasty. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if um, we've been leading up to something here and we, uh, you know, you're actually going to be sending an aged steak to every one of our listeners. Uh, so if they could just go to living on the edge dot show, click contact, provide their right. shipping address and, um, there's a good chance uh, they'll be receiving one of these steaks. And then in fact, That's you're right. actually, we'll do, you're we'll going to be a, we'll traveling a, we'll out do there. A raffle for continental oh, us shipping only though. Okay. So, so one person is going to get us now. Will will you, I know before the show, we were talking about this, that you were planning to, tr- to travel out there to them, cook the steak on their property, eat, eat the dinner with them. Yeah. Well, if somebody, the funny part is if somebody's in the Bay area and uh, people like uh, Wanho on my team have at least done this. Mm-hmm. But often, you know, I'll, I'll go to Slack and be like, I got a barbecuing today. I got some extras. And people come by and pick them up. Um, Wano's actually dropped off like raw meat on Fridays. And I smoked it for him all weekend. And him and his family come and pick it up on Sunday. already smoking I, 30, 40, 50, 60, 150 yeah. pounds of meat. What's an extra steak thrown? Bring it on there. So bring it. Live it on the edge. Show. Click the contact <laughs> link. Uh, fill out your information if you're in the Bay Area. Yeah, uh, and you need to get some meat uh, smoked. Yeah, oh, Jason's yeah. your guy. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Thank you, Dan. That's it. That's all we're gonna do. Okay. <laughs> well, have a, have a good week. I guess we did that. We'll just tell Heather. We'll use the show notes for next time. But yeah, we'll say. Um, I mean, these will still be good. I mean, this. Uh, oh, these will all be fine. A week. Be from good now. in a week. Yeah, I mean, this be- was a banner week in edge computing. It's you got Google Next happening next week. Focus on the distributed edge. VM world just happened. Yeah. But it'll still be good. It'll still be fresh next week. This week we had to talk about steak. Yeah. I think it's fine. It's perfect. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Jason. Have a good one. (laughs)